Perry, Perry. The Court of Appeals of the State of Indiana is now in session. The Honorable Melissa S. May of Vanderburg County presiding with the Honorable Leanna K. Weissman of Dearborn County and the Honorable Peter R. Foley of Morgan County. Good to be here in Richmond today. Welcome. This is in the case of William R. Brittingham III versus State of Indiana. Um, Council Michael Lambert. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning. I see you reserved 10 minutes yes. for a rebuttal. Um, if we get into questioning um, during the first part of your argument and we tend and we go into that, we'll just kind of take what's out of that um, for your rebuttal. Kind of move from one to the other. Make sense? Yes, sure. All right. Okay. And um, Evan Comer? All right. Council, when you're ready, you may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. Good morning, your honors. This is a, an appeal from a, uh, a case out of the Lake Superior Court, wherein I have stated that the, that the trial judge, his decision denying the motion to dismiss should be reversed. We believe that the trial court abused its discretion for a number of reasons. First and foremost, when the court looks at the ruling as prepared by the trial court. So we're just here to address the sure. motion to dismiss. In your brief, you, yes. you somewhat hint around that you were also claiming you were prejudiced by the denial of the motion to, to strike, but you don't make any further argument on that. Have you abandoned that claim? Only in, in as far as stating any facts, the, it, I, I think it just showed the sloppiness at the time in front of the trial court. The state at that time filed their brief in opposition to my motion to dismiss on the day of the hearing, violating the courts. But you're not asking us to render decision no. on that. No, not okay. at all, Your Honor. Not okay. at all. Counsel, since we're here in, you know, in this environment, can you give kind of a recitation of the facts as far as what brought us here? Certainly. Uh, on, the, on an early morning in January 2022, uh, William Brittingham, he suspected that his longtime girlfriend was cheating on him. He took it upon himself to investigate, to find out whether or not it was true. He did, and he found out that it was true. He uh, was waiting to see his longtime girlfriend come to work, and her paramour was the front seat passenger in the vehicle. Um, an argument ensued once they met. Uh, during the argument, the, the paramour, uh, deciding that it was probably not safe to be there, he left. Uh, Mr. Brittingham was arguing with his longtime girlfriend, and then the facts uh, stated within the, the case shows that uh, at some point, Brittingham handcuffed his girlfriend and placed him 
placed her inside of his vehicle, whereupon he entered the vehicle and decided to go look for the paramour. He found the paramour a few minutes later, uh, roughly three or four blocks away, trying to get into a, a Meyer store, which was still closed at the time. At that moment, he got out of his vehicle, had some sort of a scuffle with the paramour, and then drove off with his girlfriend. Uh, there were a number of charges that stem out of this, mainly uh, kidnapping while armed with a deadly weapon, confinement, battery as a felony against uh, the paramour, uh, intimidation, and then ultimately uh, two counts of misdemeanor battery against the paramour. And so there were, there were charges brought both um, against your client for um, what he allegedly did to the paramour. Correct. And then also uh, what he did against the girlfriend. Correct. So, and they were filed in the same case? There were charges filed against Mr. Brittingham resulting from the confinement and kidnapping of his girlfriend and the felony intimidation and misdemeanor battery against a boyfriend in one case. That was filed, uh, I believe, in still within January of last year. And then in early February of last year, the state also filed an additional charge of battery against the boyfriend that was filed in a, in a sister superior court in Lake County. Then all related to the same incident and the same alleged same battery. Incident, same case, same time frame. Was there any reason given by the state as to why there were two separate cases? No, there was no reason given, Your Honor. Mr. Brittingham subsequently, he appeared in court uh, and pled guilty to the one count of misdemeanor battery against Mr. Hernandez. He was sentenced and he actually, the day that he, the day that he pled guilty, court ordered a PSI, pre-sentence investigation mm -hmm. report, set the case over for a sentencing hearing, I believe three weeks later, whereupon he was sentenced. Did he plead straight up or was there a plea agreement? He pled straight up. Okay. He pled without the benefit of a plea agreement, which is why the court ordered a pre-sentence investigation mm -hmm. report. Once he, his plea was to the misdemeanor battery, correct? Correct. And not the F6? Correct. So there was at least an agreement that he was pleading to the misdemeanor battery only? He pled to the only charge that was in that court. So the misdemeanor battery was the only charge in, in the um, second case? And we're talk, are we talking about the second case or the first case? The second case was just a class A misdemeanor battery okay. against okay. Mr. Hernandez. The other charges involving Mr. Hernandez was a level six felony intimidation and a That's class B six. misdemeanor battery which was filed in the, in, in the criminal felony court. Have those charges been dismissed from the felony information? Which charges? The, the charges involving the paramour. The state moved to dismiss those charges on the day of the hearing on the motion to dismiss. They came and dismissed them after that hearing. So, so we have a felony information, and we're going to call the felony information the one regarding the girlfriend, and then we have a misdemeanor information involving the paramour. Correct? You have a felony information with charges of the girlfriend and the paramour in one court, 
and then you have a, a misdemeanor information involving the paramour in another court. Was the misdemeanor charge filed first or were the felony charges filed the first? The felony charges were filed first. The, the, the dangling misdemeanor charge came about three weeks later. Let me ask you a question. Did you represent the defendant at the guilty, were you trial counsel or? or counsel? I was trial counsel, Your Honor. And, and because I think in, looking in the record, there's not a, a transcript of the guilty plea hearing in the misdemeanor case, correct? I think the only transcript I saw was the transcript of the um, motion to dismiss here. That is correct. Was there discussion at the guilty plea or sentencing hearing on the misdemeanor as to this other pending felony case in um, the other courtroom? The only discussion that took place was a discussion that Mr. Brittingham had another pending criminal matter. Were you counsel in both cases? I was counsel in both cases. So you were aware of both? I was aware of both, yes. <clears throat> so so as far as the, oh, did you have a question? No, no, go ahead. Does, so as far as the joinder, we're looking, and you're relying heavily on Williams, that's a Supreme Court case. And Williams tells us we need to examine a couple things to see if the charges are related enough that they need to be joined. Certainly. Um, and... That would be whether the acts are connected by distinctive nature, have a common modus operandi, and a common motive. Could you address each of those in turn and tell me why these cases should have been joined? Because the, the crimes that occurred, they occurred uh, contemporaneous with each other. In the states, Weren't they in different places, though? You're saying they were three or four blocks away. Correct. At the... So it's not exactly contemporaneous because there's a little bit of distance between. Well, at the time that Mr. Brittingham is alleged to have handcuffed his girlfriend and placed her in his vehicle, the only crime he had committed at that point was confinement. The kidnapping didn't occur until he moved her. Well, One didn't he move her from the Dollar Tree parking lot to the Meyer parking lot? He did. He, okay, is that movement? That is movement. But the crime of kidnapping wasn't complete. Didn't he move her from her car into the passenger seat of his and handcuff her? Is that enough for movement? I don't believe it's enough for movement until he moves her from the place where they were arguing. He placed her in the in his vehicle, and that's when he decided to go on go and look for Mr. Hernandez. So the crime of kidnapping was ongoing when he reached the location of Mr. Hernandez. And in fact, the crime of kidnapping, uh, by the state's recitation of the facts, continued from that parking lot in Maryland, Indiana, until they reached Nebraska later that day. Would, say he had not stopped to um, have a confrontation with the paramour, um, would we even be here today if he had not stopped to do that? No, because those crimes wouldn't have been charged. And then maybe the state would have gotten their filing correct. But I mean, just just the fact that he stopped in order to have a confrontation with the paramour, did that somehow interrupt somehow the kidnapping? No, because the kidnapping was ongoing. Okay. The kidnapping wasn't uh, complete. There was only one count of kidnapping, correct?
I guess another way to frame the question was the kidnapping that was charged not completed and subject to being proved evidentially at the time they left the Dollar Tree parking lot. The crime was ongoing. It wasn't, it wasn't complete. At what point is kidnapping complete? I mean, if, if, I, if I take out a gun and, and hold you at gunpoint and drag you out to my car and throw you in the car and drive away, uh, and I drive for six days and you don't get out of the car, is it not complete until I stop or is it complete when I throw you in the car and drive off? I think when you compare with, with other crimes, it's probably not complete until you reach a place of safe haven. And what, makes, what exactly is a place of safe haven when you're kidnapping somebody? Is it a safe haven for the kidnapper or a safe haven for the kidnappee? For the kidnapper. Okay, well, safe haven could be the highway. I mean, I'm away from wherever it was. I mean, how do we come to that determination? When you reach that point, I would say that the kidnapping was an, it was an ongoing offense. So it's like the definition of pornography that the Supreme Court says, when you, when you know it, you see it, or you see it, you know it, right? Correct. Okay. However, I would state to the court that given that this was kidnapping while armed with a deadly weapon, uh, had a death occurred, Anytime during this kidnapping, that would that would trigger the implications of felony murder. Right, but luckily we're not we're not facing that. Correct. So, so is the state able to try the kidnapping case without mentioning the battery? Because that's another thing we look at as far as joinder to see if they're so connected that one can't be tried without commenting about the other. Is that possible for the state to do? It would be extremely difficult because why not? Why? Because first off, Mr. Hernandez was not present when the confinement took place. Mr. Hernandez. Well, doesn't took, that aid the state's case then? Well. Because he's not a necessary witness. And if, if we can disconnect the two cases, then the argument for joinder becomes a little weaker. They are witnesses. The boyfriend and the girlfriend are witnesses for each other's offenses. But it could be tried without mentioning the battery on the Paramore, correct? I don't know how you would uh, separate out a lot of the facts because this is such close in time, place, and continuity of action. But the kidnapping took a long time. So he took her from the dollar store parking lot. Then he went the three or so blocks to the mire, had this altercation with the Paramore where there was battery, pointing of a firearm. Mm -hmm. And then he took her all the way to Nebraska. So there was a quite a bit of time. And during that time, he's letting her call family and co coworkers are calling. So there are a lot of other witnesses that could bolster her story that this had been a kidnapping, right? You don't need the paramours information or you don't need to add that to the story to complete the story of the kidnapping, correct? It depends on how they want to try their case because all the other w w witnesses that may have information, it was over the phone. It wasn't an eyewitness. Does that matter? It's it's evidence, is it not? It is. Do you guys have any more questions for him? Um, how much time does he have left? Um, he's gone over uh, three minutes, 50 seconds. Okay, so you'll have, what is that math? Um, it'll be uh, six minutes. Okay, y'all have six minutes on rebuttal. Thank, Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Comer, the case is with you. 
Thank you, Judge May, and may it please the court. Brittingham was not entitled to dismissal under the successive prosecution statute. The record here shows that the kidnapping and criminal confinement of Deschantal and the battery of Hernandez were separate acts that took place at different locations, that involved different harms, that were carried out using different means, and that were perpetuated against different victims. You're saying that now, but in the probable cause affidavit, the officer admits that the, uh, I'm reading from the um, kidnapping probable cause, the officer Bernowski said this kidnapping incident was in relation to a previous battery call that occurred previously on January 12, 2022, and that both reported around 5.50 a.m. Certainly, Your Honor. Um, and 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 I, I guess I don't want to make this case something it's not. I acknowledge that the, that the two cases are related to one another, but we need something more than just mere relation. Um, what Williams said is um, under the successive prosecution statute, we have to interpret basically what the term should have been charged in the former prosecution means. And the way we do that is by determining um, whether the charges um, were based on the same conduct or on a series of facts constituting a sequence. Does it matter that they were charged? Because you, you have the felony charges and you have the misdemeanor charge. The misdemeanor charge came after the felony, but it seems to be on the same incident that were, the, some of the counts on the felony charge were related to. Well, so the state already had charged them together. That, that's an interesting question, Your Honor. Um, and and this case is really something, I think, separate from what Williams contemplates. Because in Williams, we had a case where the defendant's charged in one count, pleads guilty in one count, and the state agrees, I'm not going to charge you with the Class B felony or with a habitual offender. And then after that agreement is reached, charges the defendant with a Class B felony and a habitual offender. So, so Joinder is more about notice then? Joinder is more about, I guess, the efficiencies of whether we are going to bring or going to allow the state to bring trials or, or bring charges together at the same. But trial. does not harm the defendant because if there are two separate charges or two separate cases going on, he has to hire counsel for both. He has to, you know, pay an attorney to go to different courts to to deal with the situation. Pleading guilty in one, he can't necessarily negotiate the same plea as he could if it was all in the same count. He loses some sentencing powers. Shouldn't we be concerned about that? I'm not clear where in the Joinder statute that fits in. Um, I, I imagine that it's probably one of the factors that the trial courts can consider in their discretion, um, especially under uh, if the state has moved to join, if we get into a, a situation where we're thinking about severance. Um, but, but here we're really on the opposite end of that spectrum. We're not talking about severance. We're talking about whether the state was required to join um, this or, or, or these sets of offenses. Um, and, and I think um, under the three Williams factors, I think that we're that that um, that that they, these acts were not part of a single scheme or plan. And that's what the defendant has the burden of showing on a motion to dismiss that there was one plan and that all of these acts were part of it. Um, and, and we really don't even need to look further than Brittingham's own conduct at the time the kidnapping began to find support for the trial court's decision to deny the motion to dismiss. Um, one of the strongest points in the state's favor here um, is the fact that Brittingham let Hernandez go after he arrived at the parking lot. Um, certainly the police report here establishes that Brittingham was aware that Hernandez was present. Um, and yet, despite the fact that Brittingham was both the only person who we know was armed um, and was already willing to uh, and able to hold at least one individual against their will, he allowed Hernandez to escape from the parking lot and travel to another location 
But um, doesn't the fact that Hernandez was there to begin with kind of connect these cases together? Because he's he's there at the start. Well, certainly he's there at the start, but we don't have any indication um, from Brittingham that, one, he knew Hernandez would be there. Um, and second, um, we don't have any indication. Wasn't that, that the point of him going there is to find her with her paramour? He was going there to confront Deschantal. Um, we don't know from the record that that he suspected that Deschantal would be there. Um, what the statement contained in the police report is um, he had had a conversation with her. Um, she told him that she was picking up coffee and then would be going to work. And he knew she was lying. Um, something about that had been an hour ago and he was going to wait for her. Um, and, and the other important factor is we don't have any indication that Birdingham actually said anything to Hernandez. We don't, he didn't tell him to stop. He didn't tell him, wait, he didn't indicate anything in that. But, but at the initial confrontation at Dollar Tree, the three are together, correct? Correct, Your Honor. They're all present at the scene and they're present at the time the state alleges the defendant handcuffed um, the victim, the kidnapping victim, the girlfriend, and put her in his car, correct? Right. And then... Well, sorry. I, we're, I believe that um, that Hernandez was already gone by the time she was placed in the back of Brittingham's car. But was at least kid, or, um, handcuffed? Or do you know? It's not clear. Oh, not clear. Okay. Yes. But fair enough. But they were all there at, a, at, some, at the beginning of the inception, and there was at least some confrontation. Yes, Your Honor. And then Hernandez leaves. Um, the uh, girlfriend is placed in the car uh, against her will, alleged and handcuffed, and then the uh, defendant drives to the other parking lot, right. Meyer, and confronts Hernandez, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yes. So there aren't many cases in Indiana talking about the successive prosecution statute, are there? Uh, no, Your Honor, there are not. You've got Williams, and then you have McDonald and Honeycutt, both of which are Court of Appeals cases. Yes. Do either of those cases either help or hurt the state's position in this case? I'm not, I, I, I'm not sure because, again, I think that we are, we are in somewhat of a different situation where the state here, it, it, it's almost as though we're not actually, it's not actually a successive prosecution. I realize that the misdemeanor case was the first one to judgment, but, but those cases all contemplate charges that have been filed after um, a first prosecution has come to resolution. And here, the, the second case came, was charged and came to resolution during the appendency of the felony cause. So um, is that a point of distinction that, that, that matters? I mean, because it's really not an element that's, that's set forth under Williams, you know, distinct nature, common, common modus operandi, you know, this, the timing of what charge one versus charge two isn't, stated in Williams as a, a factor to be considered. I'm, I'm not I'm not entirely sure where that fits into Williams, except to say that Williams was, was thinking about different things um, when the court issued that decision. Uh, and, and, and I think in Williams, the, the underlying concern was we want to be able to give defendants finality when they have gone to resolution in one criminal case. We don't want to allow the state to come back in and say, oh, no, I can actually um, get more out of this set of facts. Which kind of follow is a follow-up question, and I, and I, I asked um, 
Mr. Lambert as well. Um, at the time, the defendant pled guilty to the misdemeanor case, which is in time, chronologically, case number two. Correct. The defendant was aware case number one was pending, correct? Yes, Your Honor. All right. All right. And there's a statement in, in Williams that I think you were alluding to. I don't have the page, but I have a, that the, the intent of the successive prosecution statute is to provide a check on otherwise unlimited power of the state to pursue successive prosecutions. Um, and, and I guess, so hearing your argument, you, you would, is it your position that that intent is not met by this case because both were pending at the same time and both were pending at the time he pled guilty to case number two? I, I certainly think it's possible, Your Honor. We don't have a lot of good case law to support that, um, but but I, I certainly think that that's one way this court could distinguish this case from Williams. Um, and then even if the court doesn't want or doesn't feel like it needs to get there, I think that we're still fine under the three Williams factors. Um, with respect to the distinctive nature, I think one of the most important facts in the state's favor is the fact that we have two victims here. Um, and from my research, and I've found about five cases that have dealt with successive prosecution matters where they've mentioned cases involving multiple victims, and none of them have ever found that the state couldn't bring those charges separately. Um, and I think most recently, and I know that it's not cited in our brief, but most recently the court um, found that um, a separate series of distinct offenses against different victims would not have required joinder of charges in Schmidt versus state. Um, and the site for that is 986 Northeast 2nd, 857. Um, that's a 2013 case from this court. Um, and then also the Say case, which um, Williams relies on, um, talks about a, a prior Indiana Supreme Court case where you had a, um, a defendant who was charged with murder. Um, he was subsequently acquitted on that murder. Um, and then um, the state filed charges against the defendant for the felony murder of the original victim's wife and the robbery incident during which both victims were killed. And, um, and, and in say, the court um, comments favorably on that decision and says that under Section 10C of the Joinder Statute, there wasn't a required dismissal. Um, and so I think that the fact that we have two victims here, um, it, it matters because it suggests different targeted acts um, and, and so that, that's something that makes the nature of the, of the offense weigh in the state's favor. And also we have the different places. And I think um, once you get to a different location, um, at that point, um, it suggests a break in the chain of causality as well. Um, so can you try the one case without mentioning the other? I asked Mr. Lambert that, and he was convinced that you could not. Um, I, I think it, it might be possible, Your Honor. It, it, gets a little, it, 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 it gets a little difficult when we get to the issue of motive. Um, I think certainly, but I, I, I know that the state um, in at the um, dismissal hearing has already acknowledged that it is not planning to bring up the battery at all. Um, and so certainly I think that you can you can try the kidnapping without talking about what happened to Hernandez in the Meyer parking lot. Um, but also, um, I, I do want to clarify, I'm not sure that that is the correct test to apply. I think Williams is pretty clear about the three kinds of factors that we consider and that those are the three factors that we briefed in our in our brief of Apple Lee. So what time was a uh, kidnapping complete? Well, <clears throat> so so there are two ways that we can answer that question, Your Honor. Um, we can there look are, at it. There's always two ways. Sure. And <laughs> so we can look at it under the under how Indiana's old double jeopardy regime um, contemplated it, which is when um, the minimum amount of, of activity 
has been done to set or has been committed that satisfies that statute. And I think here, um, the, the, at, at a minimum, the act of pulling um, Deschantel from the car and placing her in the back of Brittingham's truck what um, could arguably be enough for kidnapping. And certainly by the time they leave that parking lot, that's when the removal has happened. Um, and so there's no question that- So I, the it, difference between criminal confinement and kidnapping is the, is moving the victim. Correct. And it doesn't have to be a big movement. I don't have to take you across state lines. If I move you from there to here, have I kidnapped you? It's certainly possible, Your Honor. Um, and, and, and again, I believe that there's a distinct act of criminal confinement here because we do have um, evidence that Brittingham um, forced Deschantel up against the glass at the Dollar Tree. And so that would be a separate criminally culpable act. If there are no further questions, um, the state respectfully asks that this court affirm the denial of the defendant's motion to dismiss. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay, thank you, counsel. Mr. Lambert, you have six minutes for rebuttal. May it please the court, the state in their brief, they basically in the end say that this was just a, a, a general criminal incident. When you look at the successive prosecution statute combined with the um, Joinder statute. The, the Joinder statute is supposed to cover all acts from a single criminal event. All acts from this whole continuity of action. And this is where I think the trial court got it wrong. They did not look at this as one continuous event. They saw this as different events that happened on a, on a day. The Joiner statute is meant to cover all of the actions that took place during that what's called continuity of action. So can we talk about his motive in relation to the girlfriend versus his motive in relation to what you're calling the paramour? It's based on jealousy and all the emotions that, that, it, that it evokes. Jealousy is perhaps the most complex human emotion that we have. Feelings, feelings can go from resentment to betrayal, to fear, to rage, all in a given moment. That's why moments such as these are so volatile. Finding your loved one betraying you in front of you. That I don't, I, I can think of very few events in our personal lives that can become more volatile in the drop of a hat than that. And that's what was going on when Mr. Brittingham discovered his longtime girlfriend with the paramour that morning. He had a suspicion and those suspicions, whether or not they're real or imaginary, they trigger the same emotions. So I would ask the court to take a look at, at all of the things that took place that day. It's one continuous stream of events, close in time, place, and continuity of action. So my colleague, Judge Foley, was asking about whether or not we should look to, uh, I, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> it was brilliant. It was brilliant, yeah, but yeah. it just, it just. <laughs> <laughs> 
so, so he was asking whether or not we should look to the fact that your client knew when he pled guilty that it's back, whether he, when he pled guilty to the misdemeanor, is there any obligation on the part of the defendant to let the state know that they may might have made a mistake in charging or is the full obligation on the state side to make sure that they charge properly? The obligation is on the state side because at the end of the day, they're the ones who bring or dismiss charges. I would ask the court to take a look at the spirit that Chief Justice Shepard put in the Williams versus State case. It's hard not to see this as a bit of a gotcha, though, because he punches somebody in the Meyer parking lot and he gets a suspended sentence or a misdemeanor. And then under the, the law, you're saying that we have an obligation to dismiss the charges for him confining this woman handcuffing her, throwing her in a car, and driving her to Nebraska so he would just not have to pay for that. Yes, I mean, it, it seems real light-handed when you look at it from that perspective. However, with the successive prosecution statutes, um, I, I, I have to say this, Chief Justice Shepard said it the best that when the state brings multiple prosecutions for similar events from the same transaction, they do so at their own peril. And that's a quote from Williams versus State. But was the remedy not with your client at the time he goes into court on the battery case to say to dismiss the pre-existing, previously filed felony case? And if he pleads guilty aware I mean he has the remedy then he could have moved to dismiss the battery case is that correct could have okay so he had the election of that remedy at the time he pled guilty but he waived that remedy within the four corners of the battery case to plead guilty to the battery correct he could have moved just like you waive any cross-examination you waive all your other constitutional rights when you're pleading guilty your honor he could have moved to dismiss the battery case. However, his motion would not have had much of a, of a legal merit because he didn't have a prior conviction to say this is my reason for moving to dismiss. I guess, yeah, you're, you're correct. So the remedy would have been under the Joinder statute. Correct. Okay. You're right. So at the end of the day, the, the, the state bears the burden when they bring successful prosecutions. And I believe that's why Williams was a five to zero decision on behalf of the Supreme Court. And this came out of the same prosecutor's office, correct? Different courts, same prosecutor's office? Same prosecutor's office, yes. Different deputies. Yes. A couple of the same police officers, but different officers signing the probable cause affidavit. So there's some continuity there, but you're saying if the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing, that's the state's burden and they bear the responsibility for that. And, it, and it's even more it's even more difficult now with Odyssey because, you know, Mr. Brittingham having such a common name when you run it through the system, that's what comes up. I'm sorry, I'm being a little sarcastic. He has a very <laughs> unique name and the charges are there. So let me ask, let me ask, I know your light's red, but do, let me ask a question because the audience may, may want to know this. If one is a felony court is, um, is the state precluded from adding related misdemeanors in that, or do they just have to file felonies in that court? Uh, the way the the way the case weighted plan is in Lake County, 
the what's called the criminal courts, the 45G, 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4, those are primarily major felonies, and they receive half of all level six felonies and any related misdemeanors. Okay, so so it would have been possible to do that one in that felony case, to have filed it along with everything. Not only was it possible, they actually did it because they filed the class B misdemeanor battery in the major felony court. Okay, I just, I just wanted to make that clear. So what happened is they made a mistake and filed an additional felony. They made a mistake and filed an, an additional misdemeanor. Oh, misdemeanor, sorry, yes. And they should have filed it with the original court, but they didn't. They filed it into a completely different court. Okay, thank and, you, sir. And the way those way those courts are set up, all misdemeanors, infractions, and they receive half of all level six felonies. All right, any additional questions? No. no. Thank you, sir. Thank you, thank counsel. You. Thank you, your honors. All right. This concludes the official part of this oral argument. And since we are here um, at this place, we have the ability to come off from behind the bench and answer some questions from the audience. One thing we cannot do is answer any questions about this case. So um, if you had a whole bunch of really good questions about this case, we're gonna have to decline because that's one thing we cannot do. Um, we will meet afterwards and discuss this and opinion will be issued in due course and you will be provided it, it will be made available. But in case you have any questions with respect to um, the general courts, us, um, how we got here, we have two newer members of the bench sitting on either side of me, um, you're more than free to ask. So um, we will come back from behind. Bailiff. All rise.